Father, thank you for this church family. And I thank you for the book of 2 Timothy, in which we go through this book and talk about what it means to be together for tomorrow. That encouragement, that endurance, to understand what life looks like, always looking forward to that next generation. God, as we tackle a difficult subject today, may my words fall down so that your words would be lifted up, that every one of us would be led and guided by your Holy Spirit to hear this morning what you want us to hear this day, that our minds would understand, that our eyes would see more clearly, and that our hearts and hands would respond by bringing you glory. We pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I almost think I should apologize to the ushers praying while the offering plates are going around. I'm sorry about that. A couple of weeks ago, I was sitting in a worship planning meeting with, uh, with Tim, who's our worship pastor, and Paige, who's our worship director. And we were planning this morning's worship service. And Paige said to me, well, I'll be leading this day. What is your topic on? And I said, um, we're going to be dealing with false teachers. And Paige and Tim laugh at me, and Tim looks at me and says, hey, good luck with that. Maybe I should have saved my sermon for suffering for the sake of the gospel for next week after I deal with this today. If you're visiting with us this morning or you're relatively new to Ellerslie, it's safe to say that on Sundays such as Mother's Day or Father's Day or Thanksgiving, we don't necessarily preach those hallmark Sunday sermons. But that doesn't mean that on a day like today we can't give a beautiful ode to mothers. I have a recent picture of my two-year-old and my four-year-old both wearing t-shirts that clearly define their personalities. Hawksley, my two-year-old on the left, is wearing a shirt that says, I'm the reason we're late. This little boy is a whirling dervish. I'm not even going to talk to you about what he did yesterday, but this past week, he got into one of those heavy-duty Rubbermaid containers, ripped off the lid, found some markers, and decided to tattoo his lower arms and his face And I think my wife was quite upset while at the same time going, this is really funny stuff. On the right is my four-year-old Beckham. And like most preschoolers, he asks questions to the point that your head is ready to explode. For those of you who have been there before, you know what I mean. But why gets a little intense at times. But when mixed with insightful questions and observations, it's an incredible opportunity to teach. Certainly, I help to carry the burden of teaching my children, but my wife is with them nearly every moment of every day, shaping their thoughts and their behaviors, visits to the park, shows watched on TVs, playdates gone wrong, all of them opportunities to teach and correct our children, to think about the Christian worldview. My children are still young. Some of you are teaching teenagers and helping your children navigate social media, gender identity issues, school life balance, and so much more, all in a world that is quickly progressing, not just to post-Christian, but to anti-Christian. For many women entering adulthood, having um, children themselves and tackling the day-to-day activities of life, leaning on your mom, is common practice. There's an authenticity. There's a stability, a trust, knowing that mom is there for you. It's not hard to look back at our old childhood and to remember the embrace of moms or mother figures in our lives. It's not hard for many of us to look in the mirrors ourselves and to see the mantle of responsibility as we raise our children looking together for tomorrow. It's not hard as a church family to see the importance of working together to create an environment where we know the truth and where we do what it says. 
We've been going through a sermon series on 2 Timothy. If you have your Bibles, your devices, I invite you to open them uh, with us to 2 Timothy. Now, if you don't have a Bible, there should be a Bible in the pew rack in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, it's our gift to you this morning. Uh, In the opening couple of pages, if you're new to church, there's a table of contents. The book of 2 Timothy can be found in the New Testament. The big numbers are the chapter numbers. The small numbers, the verse numbers, were in 2 Timothy chapter 2. And as you're flipping there, a brief summary of where, what we've learned so far. The Apostle Paul, the author of 2 Timothy, is writing to this young protege, this young pastor. And I love how the letter begins. This is chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. As Pastor Mel introduced us to this book, he spent a lot of time unpacking that word life. There's three words for life in uh, the original language that the New Testament is written in. And life is not about whoever dies with the most toys wins. Life is not about getting the most stuff. I'm sure many of you know people who have lots of stuff. But they're just not happy. Neither is life about the greatest quality. Despite the standard of living that we have here in Alberta, one of the richest, wealthiest places in the entire world in the history of the world, Alberta has one of the highest levels of depression that we've ever seen. Rather, life is about fullness. Talking to a group of people in John chapter 10, Jesus says to them, a thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. One of my good friends in my previous church, her name is Diana, told me a story once about how her family had very, very little growing up. Even at Christmas, it wasn't about gifts. It was about having a slightly better meal. And one Christmas, her uncle came over, who was quite a wealthy uncle, and after sharing a simple meal together, they gathered around the piano to sing, to tell stories, to laugh, and soon her uncle was just crying. My friend Diana, a young woman at the time, said, Uncle, why are you crying? And he said, I have a lot of money. My kids lack for nothing. I can give them whatever they want. But at times like this, I am reminded that my children are way too absorbed in their own worlds and really don't want to have anything to do with me. Diana's family didn't have much material wealth. They didn't have a high standard of living. But they loved Jesus. And her and all her brothers and sisters are all active members in their local churches. There was a fullness of life. And knowing and understanding the fullness of life Jesus has to offer, we then look at what it would be like to endure for the sake of the gospel. We look ahead to a brighter future and are excited what God wants to do here at Ellerslie. We think about a brand new worship service that's going to take place in the gym. We're excited about the worship service that's going to take place at the same time here in the auditorium and realize that all of us can worship together in the same room, having worship for all generations so that all people would come to know, love, and serve Jesus as their king. We want to be the church that young families in southwest Edmonton come to. We want to see that baptismal tank full. I had somebody come to me just between services out of the blue and say, I want to get baptized. When can we talk about it? We want this to be a regular occurrence at our church where people bring people and are excited about what's happening here at Ellerslie. We think that that's something worth sacrificing for. If you enjoy taking notes, the first part of our outline this morning is resisting false teachers. We've moved from this idea of life to enduring for the gospel to what is happening in this church that Timothy is serving in. Resisting false teachers, picking up in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14. 
Keep reminding them, says Paul, of these things. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. It is of no value and only ruins those who listen. It can be summarized in a few short words. Avoid fighting in front of others. Most of us in this room have been a part of awkward situations. Whether you're at your office Christmas party, whether there's a staff meeting in which people just start blowing up and you think to yourself, this is not the way it's supposed to go. How many of us have watched TV shows or movies or lived through awkward family dinners ourselves where we think, why do we all gather at Christmas or Thanksgiving or Easter when we just know things are going to blow up? And if we're being bluntly honest with ourselves, we've been at those congregational meetings where the conversation goes sideways. We've been a part of small groups in which a couple people use that as their soapbox to stand up and say about what they really want to talk about. Now, some people might enjoy watching the dumpster fire take place. But most of us don't. And what goes through our minds when those awkward situations happen? These staff meetings are a waste of my time. Why do we go to grandma's house every Thanksgiving knowing it's going to be awkward? I don't know if I want to be a part of church anymore if this is what it's going to look like. Whether you look at verse 14 in front of you or that summary on the screen behind me, look carefully at those words that are being said. Paul isn't asking people to ignore false teaching. He's asking them not to fight and make a public spectacle of themselves. It ruins the listener. Go back to that awkward moment at church, at home, at work, at play. Think about what happens when bumbling Bob or stammering Steph just stands up and speaks. As long as it's a one-man show, all they've done is embarrass themselves. They've become the butt end of jokes for maybe a period of time, but that's it. But the moment two or more people engage in a heated discussion, it makes it awkward for everybody else in the room, and nobody wants to be a part of it anymore. Nowhere does Paul say, allow them to continue in their diatribe. He simply says, don't fight in front of others. You can do that with a calm demeanor. Someone can ask someone else to sit down. Someone can ask someone to be silent. You might ask a challenging question in a way that helps promote discussion and not fighting. He says to them, I don't want you to fight in front of others. But then he says, this is what you should do. Verse 15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Every one of us in this room are going to be engaged with conversations about God. The moment that people know about your faith, they're going to ask you about it. Even if you sit there thinking, joke's on you, Dave, nobody knows I'm a Christian. Well, what's going to happen when they find out? They're going to ask you why you haven't been telling people. Well, not speaking directly to teachers, the Apostle Peter speaks about much the same circumstance, and you can hear that common theme of respect come through. This is 1 Peter 3.15. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Well, look at that next sentence. But do this with gentleness and respect. The more conversations we have about faith, the more we hone and sharpen our responses, the more we can correctly handle the word of truth. There's a passage in the book of James. I'm going away from my notes here so there's no PowerPoint that says, be careful if you want to be a teacher because you will be judged more strictly. 
and teaching a sermon on false teachers is a little scary for me. I used to attend a preaching conference fairly regularly, and almost every time I would attend this conference, they would talk about follow the line. Whatever the word of God is, follow that line. Don't add to it and add to the, uh, go above it and add to the word of God, but neither go below it and subtract from the word of God. We read this in Genesis 2. This is God talking to Adam. The Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. To follow that line is to say, I will not eat from that tree. But listen to what Eve says, just the next chapter. This is chapter 3, verse 2 and 3. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat from the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden. That part's true. But then Eve adds to it, and she says, you must not touch it, or you will surely die. She adds to God's word. The very next verse, the serpent Satan says, you will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. We are called to follow that line of scripture, to not add to it like Eve did, to not subtract from it like the enemy did. Well, I outline my messages and typically give you an idea of where we're going, the journey through the 30-minute sermon. I don't necessarily give you lots of points, but what I want to do is give one big idea, a really hard stat for pastors. 90% of what I say on a Sunday morning, of what Pastor Mel says on a Sunday morning, is forgotten by Tuesday morning. I think that stat's generous. (laughs) So I come in with one big idea. Two weeks ago, I said something like this. Nothing worthwhile ever comes easy. Last week, in talking about endurance, we said, will you suffer for the sake of the gospel? This week, as we talk about dealing with false teachers, know the truth, do what it says. Paul continues in verse 16, avoid godless chatter, because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Not much to summarize here, Paul makes it pretty clear. If the first way to resist false teachers is to avoid fighting in front of others, the second Avoid godless chatter altogether. False teachers are destructive in both their ideas and in their methods. False teachers cause people to question their faith. It can ruin their lives and ultimately destroy churches. What makes us so sad is how dangerous false teaching is. As people wander from the faith, they almost always take people with them. Paul continues in verses 17 and 18. Their teaching will spread like gangrene, Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have wandered away from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place, and they destroy the faith of some. Paul is no friend of Hymenaeus. This is the second time he's actually brought his name up. We read in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Hold on to your faith and good conscience. Some have rejected these, and so have shipwrecked their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. That phrase, handed over to Satan, means to be excommunicated, completely removed from the church. This might seem like a strong response, but look at that imagery from the Apostle Paul in verse 17. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. As soon as I read that, I thought, oh, I'll throw a picture up of gangrene on the PowerPoint. No, I will not. 
I hopped on Google Images to see what gangrene looked like, and it is disgusting. Absolutely repulsive. I was not putting that on the screen behind me. And then I read up a little bit on it, gangrene. And it said, if you don't treat gangrene immediately, it can rapidly spread through the whole body, causing an irreversible infection. You have to treat it as soon as possible. The same thing is true about false teaching. It can rapidly spread through the entire church, causing an irreversible infection. You have to treat it as soon as possible. In the case of gangrene, better to lose a hand or a foot than to lose your whole body. In the case of the church, better to lose one or two people than a church split. In a culture that is currently consumed by acceptance, this is a hard thing to hear. What do you mean you would ask somebody to leave the church? Isn't the church supposed to be the most accepting organization there is? How can you do that? When diagnosed with cancer, do you cut it out or do you let it spread to the rest of your body? If you were to have a kitchen fire, do you go, wow, that's really pretty? Or do you put it out before it destroys your whole home? How many of you have worked in an organization and thought to yourself, that's a bad employee. Why won't he just get fired? Or sat in that classroom and think that one person's disrupting the whole class. Just ask him to leave. You see, when handled properly, not only in the business or the classroom, but certainly in church, We can save people from a destructive force. And it can save the individual as well. The corrective forces are used to help the individual see his or her wrong and hopefully make the changes necessary. Looking at verse 19. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription. The Lord knows who are his, and everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. Ultimately, God knows those who are his, and setting someone apart for a period of time will show their true colors. They'll either turn back to God, or they'll say, I want nothing to do with him. In between services, one of our children's leaders said, Dave, we like when you preach. You're just really short. Can you add a couple more stories? (laughs) And so for the sake of children's ministry, I'll add an extra story. This idea here is almost an exact quote from Numbers chapter 16. In Numbers chapter 16, a bunch of people come up to Moses and they say to him, Moses, we think you're doing things wrong. Moses, a humble man of God, says, I don't think that's the way it is and I think that what you're doing is wrong. But this group of people continue to come up to Moses and say, unless you change, something terrible is going to happen. Right here, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19, it's almost an exact quote when he says, the, uh, the Lord knows who are his. And so Moses gathers everybody together. And out come the sons of Korah, who are standing against Moses. And Moses says to them, if I am doing something wrong, may God spite me. But if you are doing something wrong, may God spite you. Not in a way that we would think is a natural happenstance, but in a way that shows the power of God. If you're unfamiliar with what happens next, the earth opens up and swallows 300 people and shuts back down. God knows who are his. Well, not an issue of teaching in a previous environment I was a part of. I learned of a man who was attending our church and cheating on his wife. 
So I called the man up and he knew exactly what the conversation was going to be about and we met and the conversation wasn't long. And I said to him, is it true that you're cheating on your wife with this other woman? And he said, yep, it's absolutely true. And I said, do you understand that what you're doing is wrong and that's not what the Bible says that we are to act, but we are to act in such a way, we're to love our wives the same way that Jesus loves the church and what you're doing is not loving for your wife. And he looked at me and I said, yep, I know that's wrong. And I said, I'm gonna give you a week and, and we'll meet again. And over that next week, I'm gonna ask that you cut off relationship with this woman and let your wife know everything that's going on. He goes, okay, we'll meet again in a week. He came into my office a week later and he said, I've decided to leave my wife. And I said, I'm really sorry, but at this time, we're gonna ask you to leave the church. And he goes, I understand. Thank you for treating me graciously. And I never saw him again. There was another lady in that former environment who in a women's meeting stood up and she bashed her husband in front of a number of other women. No less than three women came up to me individually and said, Dave, this is what happened. It was terribly awkward. It wasn't good. What do we do? And so one person decided to meet with this individual one-on-one, -on -one, explain what happened, explain what took place. And this woman broke down in tears and she said, I didn't realize what I was doing. I didn't realize it hurt the other women there. I didn't realize what I was doing to my husband. Will you forgive me? And never again did I hear that woman bash her husband in public. There's both a trusting in the Lord for our salvation and supporting that grace by good conduct. The sovereignty of God is working with human responsibility. It's both God who preserves and us who persevere working together. And working both with God and with others for a better tomorrow, it's not only about resisting false teachers, but being clean vessels ourselves. This is verses 20 to 21. In a large house, there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for noble purposes and some for ignoble. If a man cleanses himself from the latter, he will be an instrument for noble purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. Paul is writing to the house of God, and in that house, people have noble and ignoble purposes. The call is for those inside the church to dissociate themselves from others who are evil in their teaching and their living, with the result being a greater usefulness for God. And I think sometimes Christians hear this and go, well, then I shouldn't hang out with anybody who does something that I don't think is good. That's not at all what the scripture is saying. When we look at the life of Jesus, we see the perfect example of what humanity is supposed to look like. We see him spending all sorts of time with people of questionable character. He spends time with tax collectors who are known all over the Middle East for being thieves and ripping people off. He spends time with women who are prostitutes, not chasing them away, but engaging them in loving discussion. He embraces the lowly of society and shows them what true and genuine love looks like. The people Jesus is most harsh with are the people of ill repute inside the church who refuse to change their ways. He's the most difficult on religious leaders and their heavy-handed teaching and constantly calling people to a higher standard of living. Yet, when even a Pharisee, one of the religious leaders, comes to Jesus and says, I don't quite understand something, Jesus warmly embraces him. The story is found in John chapter 3 of Nicodemus, a Pharisee. 
And he knows there's something good and right and pure about Jesus' teaching, but he doesn't want the other Pharisees to know that he's gone to Jesus to talk to him about it. And so he knocks on the door where Jesus is staying late at night, and he says, teacher, please help me understand what it means to follow you. And in that conversation, Jesus is gentle with him, teaching him, training him about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. What's your noble purpose in this church? How do you want to work together for tomorrow? How has God uniquely built you so that your gifts, your talents, your abilities can make this church even stronger? One of the ladies in my previous church is 80 years old and one of the most hospitable people I have ever met. Her name is Hilda. Every Sunday, she would make more than enough people, uh, more than enough food for her kids and anybody else who wanted to come over for supper. I had never been to her house for a Sunday lunch in which there were less than six people sitting around that table. She went to church every Sunday morning thinking, who's new? Who needs somebody to just talk with? And he'd invite, she would invite them over to her home. If you wanted to talk about the Bible or the sermon, she was happy to do that. If you wanted to discuss current events, she could do that too. If you wanted to just sit there and play a game, I have never met an 80-year-old woman more competitive than Hilda. And she had no problem beating you. You were in her house, you ate her food, she was going to beat you in cards. Through her hospitality, dozens of people came to faith. Marriages were healed. Lives transformed. And I am convinced people stayed in our church because of the hospitality of Hilda. She may not have led a small group she may not have spent some time teaching. Her days of being on the worship team and involved in kids' ministry were far behind her, but she, know, she knew her unique purpose. And she wanted to serve the church by being hospitable. What's your unique purpose? What's your role in church or community for the glory of God, working together for tomorrow? What can you do so that your children your grandchildren, your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors would call this church their home? How can you be engaged with people so that that baptismal tank would be filled on a regular basis? So that Alpha wouldn't just average 25, which is a fantastic number, but would average 50 people of men and women, youth and children, exploring what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Do you have gifts in music or in tech? Talk to us. Would you like to lead a small group or join a small group? Talk to us. Do you want to help out in children's ministry? On Sunday mornings, between the two services, we have nearly 200 kids. Talk to us. Know the truth. Do what it says. In becoming a clean vessel used by God, we're going to have some personal responsibilities. Picking up in verse 22. Flee the evil desires of youth. And pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Remember the context in which this is written. A wise and seasoned pastor writing to his young protege about persevering for the gospel. Paul is encouraging Timothy and calling him to flee the desires of his youth. If you want to overcome something, you have to create the environment to make that possible. If you want to stop eating junk food, Stop keeping junk food in your house. 
if you think to yourself, wow, I watch way too much TV, then cancel your Netflix subscription. If you think to yourself, I have an issue with pornography, get rid of your smartphone. How can we create an environment to make that happen? Let's take the idea of flee the evil desires of youth and turn it into a positive statement. Pursue godly ambitions. How would you like to become more like Jesus? How would one aspect of your life, how would you like one aspect of your life to become more like Jesus? And what can you do to make that happen? Over the last number of years, I've been very inconsistent in praying for my friends and neighbors so that they would have a relationship with God. I know and am well aware that I've stood behind this very pulpit and preached that. If you've been with me in leaders' meetings, we talk about it regularly. For those of you in my small group or who I've met with one-on-one, I talk about it all the time. It's not hypocrisy. I just flat out forget. And so after Christmas, every year I sit down and I think about my goals for the new year. I don't call them New Year's resolutions. They're New Year's goals. And this year I was determined to pray for my friends and neighbors at least three to four times a week. And so I coached myself. And I'm sitting there saying to myself, Dave, what's the barrier that's preventing you from praying for your friends and neighbors? Because every day I pray for my family. Every day I pray that my kids would come to know, love, and serve Jesus as their king. Every day I pray for my wife and I that we would be filled with the Holy Spirit. Why can't I pray for my neighbors? Then it struck me. I'm going to pray for my neighbors before I pray for my family. I'm going to create an environment in which, in my own personal prayer life, I'm going to pray for my neighbors first. Because I'm always going to get to my kids. I'm always going to pray for my wife. As you pursue godliness... What do you want to do? How do you want to become more like Jesus? And what are the barriers, either internally or externally, that are preventing you from making that happen? To know the truth. To do what it says. The second half of verse 22, Paul gives us another comment. Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Notice what he says next along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. It's not just that Paul wants Timothy to pursue godly ambitions. He wants Timothy to do this in community. On Sunday mornings, our sermons are 30 to 45 minutes long. It's a 30 to 45 minute monologue. But who are you in dialogue with? Is there a small group that you have? Are there friends that are close to that you can talk to on a regular basis? Are you part of a triad where a group of men or a group of women get together and talk about what's taking place in your lives? I have a couple friends that I meet with here in the church and a couple friends that I meet with who don't attend the church. About a month ago, one of my best friends called me. He lives in BC. And we talked pretty regularly, but I could tell he was distraught. And he said, Dave, I'm really struggling with this particular issue. And it was a theological issue, and he said, what the world is telling me, what I'm reading on Facebook, what I'm seeing other Christians do, I just don't know if that adds up to the Bible. And so we spent well over half an hour talking about what that looked like, talking about what the Bible said, listening to him and having him unpack what it is he needed to say. Do you have someone like that in your own life? Do you have a group that you can connect with at any time? Do you have somebody that you can call and say, hey, I just need to talk. There's something going on in my life. There's something that I'm struggling with. There's something that I want to celebrate. 
Do you have somebody in your life to do that with? If you don't, can you come talk to somebody at the Connect booth? Can you talk to me after the service? Make me work hard. I'm open to it. I'd love to connect other people. Wrapping up our passage, it says this in verses 23 to 26. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant him repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth and that they will, and that they will come to their senses and escape the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Personal responsibilities in light of false teachers, pursue godly ambitions, live in community, don't fight, but teach. In verses 23 to 24, Paul makes a significant distinction between false teachers and God's servants. False teachers, he says, are foolish, and they start stupid arguments. While God's servants do not fight, they are kind to everyone and treat people with respect. Our words matter. And how we respond to people is going to make a significant difference in how they listen and respond to us. We're reminded in Proverbs 15, verse 1, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. On a deeply spiritual level, we're reminded both in this passage and in Ephesians chapter 6 that a compassionate response is not just a response against someone who's antagonistic towards us, but it's against Satan himself. Paul writes in Ephesians 6 verse 12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, and against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Getting into a fight on social media or face-to-face isn't going to save our hearers. We need to start by breaking down walls and asking thought-provoking questions. I was talking to a photocopy repairman in the office, and it just hit me that I should ask him if he has any spiritual background. And so I said to him, are you involved in the church or a man of faith in any way? And he said, nope, and I don't want to talk about it. (laughs) All right, fair enough. But five seconds in, now my curiosity is piqued. And so I said to him, well, why don't you want to talk about it? And he turns to me, and I am not exaggerating, for 30 minutes, he told me why he didn't want to talk about spiritual things. You've probably heard the old line, seek first to understand before being understood. People are much more likely to listen to you once you've listened to them. It's a challenge to always use our words correctly. It's a challenge to understand before being understood. It's a challenge to always know the truth. But Jesus is the greatest teacher of all. While there might be false teachers, there is a teacher who is true and right and always has your best interest in mind because he knows that's what will glorify his kingdom the most. Pastor Mel and I will often talk about how there's a path and there's two ditches on either side. And one ditch is the ditch of those who are false teachers. But Jesus reaches down his hand and he says, come on up. Allow me to show you the right way to think, the right way to live, the right way to act and journey with me. On the other side of that ditch isn't, not, isn't the teachers who are right. It's the people who are jerks in correcting others, who are unloving, who are mean, who are rude. And Jesus says, allow me to show you the right way to act, 
to know the truth, to do what it says, to understand before being understood. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the book of 2 Timothy. And thank you for the series title that we've come up with, Working Together for Tomorrow. May we be a church that is excited about what you are doing in Southwest Edmonton, excited what you are doing through us wherever we might live, in our homes, in our communities, in our schools, in our workplaces. May we be a group of people who know the truth and who do what it says. May we be a group of people who love deeply, who care for others, who want to see them know, love, and serve the beauty of Jesus Christ. And may this be a place where grace and love take place so that you would be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Please rise with us and sing. Thunder 